Every week, journalists at the University of Florida's College of Journalism and Communications report important stories for the people in the North Central Florida area and beyond. This is The Rewind from WUFT, a look at some of the strongest reporting coming out of our newsroom and a discussion with the journalists who write these stories. I'm your host today, Ariana Aspiru, and let's dive into the stories from this week. On Tuesday, Gainesville became the first community in Florida to publicly launch a blueprint to become a certified welcome city to immigrants. Producer Sarah Mandel spoke with WUFT's inequity reporter and Report for America member Katie Heisen about the process to become a welcoming city and what steps Gainesville will be taking. Katie begins by describing what a welcome blueprint is. A welcoming blueprint lays out the steps that would be needed in order to become certified as a welcoming city to immigrants by the nonprofit Welcoming America. A lot of cities have taken the step of proclaiming themselves to be welcoming, but that certification has pretty rigorous criteria for what that means. So this blueprint is meant to guide city and county leaders in meeting that criteria. Gotcha. And what led Gainesville to launch this blueprint? How long has this been in the works? It's been a 15-month effort by the city of Gainesville, 60 community members, eight organizations, and a couple hundred foreign-born respondents to the Gainesville Immigrant Neighbor Inclusion Initiative Survey. So it's really collaborative. Um, There has been discussion for years of the need to reevaluate how the city is interacting with and supporting our immigrant population, which by the way, is more than 10% of our neighbors. Um, And those conversations really intensified after an incident in 2018 when the Gainesville Police Department sent Spanish speakers to a scene where the parties involved were from Guatemala and only spoke a Mayan language, not Spanish. And then in 2020, the city was awarded two grants to work on this blueprint. And actually, we were one of only 10 communities in the U.S. that received both of those grants that year. Um, And of course, COVID only made these disparities and the need for language accessibility even more apparent since then. What are the next steps that Gainesville will be making in this process? What can we expect to see in the next few months? Because the city did help lead this effort, I think it's safe to assume they'll be discussing how to make these action steps a reality. But it's important to note that we don't know the cost for implementing all these recommendations. And it will likely be a long process with many votes by the commissions at each step. There are more than 70 action steps listed in the blueprint, but it ends by urging city and county leaders to act swiftly on two next steps in particular, implementing telephone-based language services and hiring immigrant liaisons. And the city of Gainesville is currently considering a program that could fund a position for a full-time immigrant liaison, and the commission has endorsed that plan. Is there a timeline for how long the blueprint is estimated to take? I don't believe so, and part of that is because 
it really is a set of recommendations and now it's in the commission's hands and in the city's hands, um, the next steps and what they do with those recommendations. In your article, you mentioned that the plan was unveiled on Tuesday. What was that event like? One of the things that stuck out to me was how full the room was. I go to things like this a lot as a reporter and oftentimes the reporters outnumber the people attending, but that was definitely not the case on Tuesday. There were many community leaders and members there as well as um, leaders of the city police department, the mayor, city and county commission members. Um, there were a lot of speakers at the event as well. And I think it really reflected how collaborative the effort has been and how many stakeholders there are in this process. And it's worth noting, um, last year I had been talking with someone from Welcoming America for a related story. And they said, it's pretty rare and remarkable for a city to be collaborating so closely with the community organizations on this kind of effort. Um, as far as what was said, there were about a dozen speakers, but one that really stood out to me was Jennifer Molina. She came to the US from Honduras at 17 and she now leads many local immigrant advocacy efforts. She noted that there have been many ups and downs over the years in terms of the city's treatment of immigrants, but she said she's really felt the community change for the better since six years ago when it declared itself as welcoming to immigrants. And she said um, six years ago, she never would have stood in front of that room and said her name. And, and actually, if it's okay, I'd love to play that short clip for you. Six years ago, I would have stand here and, and say my name. My name is Jennifer, <laughs> and I live here. That, that comment really um, stayed with me. In your article, you also mentioned that Gainesville has recently introduced community IDs. Um, could you describe what they are and how they've been used so far? Community IDs are an alternative to traditional photo IDs like driver's licenses or passports, and they help people access basic necessary services like healthcare, housing, libraries, even just the ability to pick their kids up from school. Anyone can apply for one and program advocates say the more people who use them, the better because it helps to normalize them. The IDs are recognized by the city, the county, the school system, the police department, even UF Health. But at the event, um, a speaker urged the sheriff to follow suit with county law enforcement. The county sheriff's office has been described by advocates as the missing link to full acceptance of these IDs. And I think it's worth noting that these IDs serve not just undocumented immigrants, but other marginalized communities like um, people who are homeless or who have just been released from jail or even members of the LGBTQ community who want to have their preferred names reflected on their IDs. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, um, often immigrants can 
be made an afterthought in city planning, but they make up more than 10% of our population in Gainesville, and they've caused almost a quarter of the city's recent growth. They've also have disproportionately high spending power in our county and contribute tens of millions to state and local taxes. So how to be inclusive of and support immigrants, especially in Gainesville, is not just social advocacy. The success of our community is very much intertwined with the success of our foreign-born neighbors. That was producer Sarah Mandel speaking to WUFT's inequity reporter and Report for America member Katie Heisen about Gainesville becoming the first community in Florida to publicly launch a blueprint to become a certified welcome city to immigrants. We'll be right back. Big ideas are reshaping our world from our jobs. If they're paying you way more than you expected to get, ask yourself, what is it exactly they want you to do? to what we eat. That message that we've finally made the sweet that your body wants. Yeah, that ad changed the world. New ideas come to life every week on Innovation Hub. Sunday morning at 11 on WUFT the rewind from WUFT. A judge has rejected the plea deal in the criminal case against the driver charged with the 2020 hit-and-run death of University of Florida freshman Maggie Paxton. Joseph Figueroa originally pleaded not guilty after being arrested seven months later in July 2021, but on March 28th, his attorney said the 31-year-old Figueroa is accepting responsibility for the accident. The plan was to enter into a plea negotiation between the defense and the state attorney's office. However, the judge decided otherwise. Producer Melissa Fato speaks with WUFT reporter Katie Delk about what happened in that courtroom and what's next for this case. Katie starts by reviewing the details of Paxton's death. So Maggie Paxton, who was 18 at the time, she was a freshman. She was walking across West University Avenue at Gale Lammer and Drive across the crosswalk, and she was heading back to her dorm. And as she was walking across the crosswalk, a blue BMW crashed into her and fled the scene. And so Maggie was left behind, um, and she died there. So very tragic accident that uh, was among the first to um, really launch a movement to change University Avenue. So I want to ask you about what happened um, What happened on March 28th. Mm-hmm. So what was this plea deal that Figueroa was trying to enter into and why mm-hmm. did the judge reject it? So the plea deal was based on the minimum mandatory sentence of four years and the defense attorney and prosecutor came to an agreement for a 10-year felony probation, which is not required in the minimum, but that was a compromise that they made prior to the court event on Monday. And this was ultimately rejected by Judge Philip Pena, who said, this is not a mandatory case. And essentially, 
Judge Pena ordered a pre-sentence investigation on Figueroa to gain more clarity, and essentially it's a background check on him. So b- before he makes the de- sentencing decision, he wants to collect more research. And that was the conclusion of Monday. So Paxton's family and close friends submitted victim impact statements. Right. What is a victim impact statement, and what did they say about what Paxton's death um, has done to their family and their community? Right. So victim impact statements essentially explain how the crime, how the death, how the loss affected those close to Maggie, or whatever case it is. And so these victim impact statements were incredibly emotional. A lot of the people there were crying, and as were the people speaking. It was very intense, um, an intense exchange. Um, And there was anger, there was a lot of sadness, a lot of mourning. But as Kylie Borg told me, Maggie Paxton's lifelong friend, they were born in the same hospital on the same day, grew up together from preschool to college and Kylie told me that these are words that she has pent up for this whole period this whole year and a half period and finally she can explain how she feels while the accused is there so very impactful moments happening and the community spoke about lingering PTSD um, especially the family Um, Both of her parents said they struggled to sleep. They have images of Maggie lying on the streets, bleeding out alone. Um, Her sister, Holly, said that she is uncomfortable in her own home at times and is unable to eat, has gone through periods of complete loss of appetite and lots of panic attacks. So the victim impact statements explain mental and physical effects. These are what the judge has to consider in his sentencing so to gauge the full impact of what happened. Were um, Paxton's loved ones at the hearing? Yes. So the four people gave impact statements. As I mentioned, Kylie Borg, Maggie's lifelong friend, her two parents, Lisa and James Paxton, and her sister, Holly. Along with those four individuals' friends, a lot of friends came from her high school, uh, Fletcher High, also from Kappa Kappa Gamma, where Maggie um, was a sorority sister. The courtroom had about 50 people on Maggie Paxton's side and then a nine on Joshua Figueroa's in the courtroom. And then there were about 40 people on the Zoom call watching. So all in all, 100 people observed what happened on Monday. Besides the four individuals who gave impact statements, what did others in attendance have to say about the outcome? Right. Thank you for asking. So besides the four that spoke, others sent in letters to Judge Pena, and he mentioned at the hearing that he heard read those letters. But after the hearing, Kappa Kappa Gamma members and others expressed that they felt drained, they felt tired. Kylie Borg told me it's not over. Um, They expressed anger, um, but ultimately there was a feeling of overall just mourning and sadness. Um, And there were two girls who drove from Tallahassee to attend the hearing that I mentioned in this story. And Aaron Booker 
and Scott Baines, and they spoke, they shared, you know, happy memories with Maggie. They were reflecting and laughing, and it was a time of people also expressing their love for her and feeling joyful in those memories. And, but all in all, like I said, there were feelings of anger, there were feelings of sadness, and just exhaustion. And when will be the next, um, what is the next step in this case? Right. So in the next steps, um, there will be a two-week pre-sentence investigation on Figueroa, and then the court will reconvene on April 20th to resolve the case. I want to ask one last question. This is not the only fatal hit-and-run accident of a University of Florida student in the last two years. I mean, there's been, unfortunately, um, several. Did you hear from any other community members about what this case might mean for the other cases of people trying to bring justice to their loved ones? Yes, that's a good question. So in speaking with some civil lawyers on the case, so attorney William Mulligan, who worked on the civil case with Miguel Figueroa, told me in an interview that he, as well as the firm Grossman, Roth, Yaffa, and Cohen, hope to bring justice to these families. They also represent Sophia Lambert's family in another case, and they said they want to prevent these sort of deaths that are preventable. He called them preventable. And he said while the sentencing and change of plea will not change the Baxton family's feelings, they obviously are still in mourning. He said he hopes that they can find some closure. And ultimately back to the um, other deaths along University Avenue, Um, Jack McKinney spoke with me. He helped form the group Not One More to advocate for changes to University Avenue. And he told me that they will continually work on this project. Kylie Borg agreed and said she will continue advocating for University Avenue changes. And while last week was focused on Maggie Paxton and and they wanted to focus their attention on her and the case, they said they will not give up advocating for changes to University Avenue. That was WUFT's Katie Delk speaking with producer Melissa Fato about what's next in the hit-and-run case of UF freshman Maggie Paxton. We'll be right back. Behold the shepherd tone. The Tinkerbell effect. Hillbilly humanism. The Overton window. Hyperobjects. The Bill Gates problem. The Zuckerberg delusion. Times are changing, and so is our vocabulary. Apodophobia. The public trust. Parasocial relations. The anti-bandwagon fallacy. Monopoly and monopsony. Let On the Media be your guide as we explore the future together. Sunday morning at 10 on WUFT 89.1-90.1. listening to The Rewind from WUFT. For eight months, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement has been investigating complaints about jail inmates who may have been improperly registered to vote by the Alachua County Supervisor of Elections Office in 2020. 
while all current and previous employees of the office were cleared of any wrongdoing, at least nine inmates so far have been indicted on voter fraud charges. Producer Malia Leiden spoke with Fresh Take Florida's Alexander Lugo and Carolina Elvento about their reporting process and how the debate over a 2018 constitutional amendment led to this case. The story started when we received five charges of voter fraud, and then when we went to look up the voter records, all five of those had registered to vote listing a jail address on the same day, July 15, 2020. Then we went on to look up what had happened that day at the Alaska County Jail, and we found out that there was a representative from the Supervisor of Elections Office, TJ Pichet, who had visited the jail that day and ran a voter registration drive. So then we just went on to speak to all the people being charged and found out what happened. And can you take me a little bit more through your reporting process and some more of the information that you learned? Kind of just looked into the charges um, and we put together a timeline of when, basically when they registered to vote. The elections official was at the the jailhouse for those two hours, um, the same day that the first five people, I think except for one, um, registered to vote the same day. So that's the way we were able to pinpoint. We were able to like basically do the timeline on our end. We went through voter records to find out when they registered. And then we went through court records to find out what they had been charged for and if they had any fine to do at that time point. And then uh, we also were looking at how much time they had served in state prison, if they did ever. And then Alex was able to actually get in contact with some of them as well. Well, once we got into contact with the prisoners, everyone that we contacted was surprised. They didn't know that they had charges against them. And they admitted that someone went and helped them register and went through and took them through the process. After that, we contacted the supervisor of elections who basically went over how they have a partnership with the Alachua County Sheriff's Office to go into these jailhouses and register um, people to vote. And they said that they comply with everything. They go into the jailhouses and they, they said that they educate the inmates, but basically ultimately it's up to the inmates to know whether they're eligible. The problem with this case is that it happened in the middle of kind of a back and forth between judges who were deciding on how to interpret Amendment 4, which basically gave felons rights to votes. And in the middle of that back and forth, it was ultimately decided that felons had to pay fines, all the fines due from court fees and um, just fees in general from, from the charges, that they have to pay those off to be able to vote. And that was the ultimate decision. And that's what led to the charges, basically. They also needed to apply, like if they had been convicted felons first, they had to apply like pardon. And if they had violent felony charges, then they don't qualify for that pardon. And after your original article was published on March 30th, what new information have you discovered on this topic? So right after the article got published on the 30th, we had been looking at other people who had registered to vote on that same on those same days that TJ Pache had gone to the jailhouse, that we had found those out um, by looking at visitor records from the jailhouse. We were keeping an eye out for around five individuals who had also registered to vote on those dates. 
And on Wednesday evening, like at around five, six, we got the charges for another four people who had also registered to vote under the jail address while owing unpaid court fees. So we did the same process to research these other four individuals, and we found that three of them had registered on the same day that Pichet had been in the jailhouse, one of them had not. And we, we went through the same process and found the information on them, what was their criminal record, um, what were the fees that they had unpaid. So yesterday, uh, we received an email from the state attorney's office, basically confirming the new people we found to be charged with uh, voter fraud. And then today I got in contact with the state, with um, someone from the state of attorney's office who basically confirmed that everyone from the supervisor of elections office is cleared. And now the only people being charged for the case are the felons who actually registered or voted while ineligible to vote. So as of Thursday, there have been nine people charged with um, voter fraud. All nine of them registered in 2020, listing a jail address. Eight of the nine registered on days that a representative from the Supervisor of Elections Office went into the Alachua County Jail in a voter registration drive and supposedly assisted them with the registration. What's something you learned that surprised or stood out to you? For me, I think the most surprising thing was how the felons just weren't notified about, you know, the charges against them. You would think that someone who was charged would be notified. Even like Carolina said, the the person who we talked to who was out of jail didn't know. I think that's the most surprising thing for me. I don't know if you want to add to that, Carolina. I was surprised to know that the law on how felons can be pardoned to vote or not was still a great area at the time that these voter registration drives were happening. And what would you say is the significance or biggest takeaway people should have from your story? So I think there's two things. One, these are actually the first cases of voter fraud that have shown up in Florida since the election happened. And now we have nine cases there's a few other ones in, in other counties, but it's still a very minimum thing. So I think it's a significance of how big the problem of voter fraud is in Florida and overall. And also how the process of voter registration is. I think just like these felons didn't know that they were not allowed to vote. I think there's probably a lot of people who are not aware of the actual policies of voter registration and what they can and cannot do as convicted felons. So I think this is an important public service story for the audience. Yeah, and just to add to that, I think it kind of shows how Florida is so targeted by, you know, these kinds of fraud cases because it's a swing state. So, you know, it's just kind of surprising how common it is. I know the population of Florida is big, so it's bound to happen, but I think it's kind of telling. And also just another takeaway is how laws are so fluid when they're so new and how fast they can change within, you know, in this case, it was within four months that the law went back and forth and it ended up 
being ruled against the felons and it ended up leading to this case where nine of them were charged with felonies, even though they seem to have not been aware that they would be charged. That was producer Malia Leiden speaking with Fresh Take Florida's Alexander Lugo and Carolina Ilvento about several inmates being indicted on voter fraud charges after a jailhouse registration drive in Alachua County. Make sure to join us again next week when we'll be showcasing the best stories from WUFT News. The Rewind is produced by me, Melissa Fato, Sarah Mandile, and Malia Leiden. Our executive producer is Sky LeBron. WUFT News is operated out of the College of Journalism and Communications at the University of Florida. I'm Mariana Asperu. Thank you for listening.